You're listening to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. I am your host, Mike Petchy. How are you? What is new? How are things? Um, I hope you guys have been enjoying the season three of our show. We have been working really hard on booking um, really great guests, and I've been pushing hard to get more directors on the show. Because as always, I'm curious how other directors do their tasks, how they do their jobs, and where they find their inspiration. Um, And (laughs) selfishly, I'm using this show as a way to have these conversations that I never really get to have. Um, And then as a byproduct, you guys get to listen and learn from it and hopefully uh, take away some really useful information as you attempt to pursue your own filmmaking, or even if you're just a fan of television, if you're a fan of films. And today's show, I will tell you, I booked today's guest because I have seen so many episodes of this director's work because of Gina and her love of a show called Gossip Girl, a show that I would never watch on my own, a show a show that would be serenading me to sleep consistently. How many seasons of that show were there, Gina? Seven in every episode. Jesus Christ, seven seasons, 24 episodes per season, and each episode is an hour long. And how long did it take you to get through that whole show? A month. So, out of of curiosity, I ended up watching a lot of that show with Gina, and obviously I'm not the demo for for that show. I'm not the demographic that they're creating it for, but I'm fascinated with the rules that that show has set for itself. And I'm kind of fascinated with the rules that that genre has sort of created for itself. Um, And uh, through that fascination, I did a little digging and I found a director who has directed a lot of episodes from that show, but not only that uh, that show itself, but Gossip Girls, Pretty Little Liars, The O.C. Uh, And recently he's been directing and uh, producing uh, Sweet Magnolias for Netflix. And so I was like, man, maybe I should have him on the show because it would be fascinating to understand his world. It would be fascinating to see where he comes from uh, to create basically these team drama episodes. Um, And so I did some digging and I found today's guest, Norman Buckley. And I've already recorded the show, guys. Spoiler alert. So I already know everything that's going to happen. And it's a great fucking episode. Uh, Norman really shares a lot. And uh, it turns out he started his career as an editor, which I have said multiple times on this show, get in the edit room. And today's episode is a prime example of that because you'll see how he has taken the skills that he got to learn from all these other directors. Because being an editor is this really interesting position that you get to be put in with other directors. You get to see directors examining their own footage You get to see them sort of processing the heartbreak when they look at their raw footage. You can see them putting the pieces together. How do I I take what we got and make it into something that works? And so he's had, oh my God, he's had, he's been doing it since the 80s. So he's had like over 20 years of experience just editing. And then in his 40s made the jump into directing, which is really fucking cool. And Norman really shares with us on the show the true helpful uh, tips and tricks that he has learned to directing actors, for directing television, for basically uh, how to become a true collaborator. And a collaborator that gets rehired, a collaborator that understands 
that it isn't just about a dictatorship. It's not about knowing all the answers. It's about preparing for all the possibilities, but it's also being open to the creative energy that is flowing around that set and funneling that down into clips that end up in the edit room. So it's a great episode for directing, guys. I'm really excited that you guys are here and that you guys are checking it out. And as always, I want to thank all of you who follow me on Instagram. That's Mike Petchy on Instagram. Or follow the podcast on Instagram. That's in love with the process pod. In love with the process pod on Instagram. I have been getting suggestions from you guys for guests. And I've been listening. We've been uh, reaching out to the folks that you guys want on the show. Um, and then a uh, big shout out to all of you who did the t-shirt competition a while ago. I don't know when this episode is going to come out. I hope prior to Christmas, but maybe not. Um, but, uh, thank you for all of you who have been following and have been wanting to get your hands on merch and wanting to get your hands on t-shirts. I still may have a few left. So if you want a t-shirt for the show, drop me a note on Instagram and be like, what do you got left for sizes? Cause I, I've got a box left of shirts that I can still give out to you guys. Um, and, uh, as always, please go follow the official podcast website. That's in love with the process. Uh, dot com. There you'll be able to go through and uh, choose your own listening experience. So I know there's a lot of new listeners that have just showed up for the show. Thanks for being here. Uh, get ready to strap in for episodes like today's episode. We're going to learn a lot, a lot from today's episode. But I know it is kind of daunting to look at that playlist on like Apple Podcasts or Spotify where you're like, this is episode what? 100 and what? Do I have to go all the way back to number one and listen all the way through? Is there continuity? Well, there's sort of a fun continuity as far as my attitude is concerned. <laughs> and you can see the crazy sort of, uh, it's, you can actually, it's a good study in the depression slash excitement roller coaster ride that a director goes on. So if you go back to episode one, you'll hear me sort of emotionally go through a roller coaster, which is great. But you can also just go to inloveoftheprocess.com and curate your listening experience. So if you just wanna go listen to all the episodes of directors, I've got them all listed there. If you wanna to listen to the episodes with crew positions, like just the editors or just the writers, you can find all those there as well. And I, I'm telling you, if you're looking to get into the show and you're like, I don't know where to start, we have like a top 20 episode selection that will really give you a good taste of what the show has been over the course of, we're like three years, Jesus, yeah. So it's been pretty fun. It's a really great ride, and a lot of the early episodes are fantastic. So don't dismiss that stuff. So head on over to inlovewiththeprocess.com and choose the episode you want to go and listen to. Um, so let's not delay it any further. Let's uh, let's get into it. I'm very excited about today's, today's guest, uh, Mr. Norman Buckley. Like I said, he has a long list. He's had over 100 hours of uh, t television experience as a director, uh, I'm sure <laughs> hundreds of hours as an editor. Uh, so strap yourselves in. He also is a visiting pr professor at UCLA. So you're essentially getting a taste of what it's like to be trained at UCLA on today's episode. So for those of you who are looking to learn more about directing, strap yourselves in, grab those noise canceling headphones, sit back, relax, and enjoy the brand new episode of In Love With The Process.
Good morning, Norman. Thanks for being on the show. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks. Uh, it's it's very exciting to have you on here. Um, I have to be 100% transparent with you. My girlfriend is a big fan of your work. She has been... <laughs> Was <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> yeah, she's, I have seen probably every episode of Gossip Girls at this point because. Oh, is that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because that's how she tries to go to sleep, and so usually I'm falling asleep to the sounds of that show. <laughs> so. well, well, I was I was lucky to direct a lot of uh, episodes of Gossip Girl. It was a really happy time in my life. I uh, I look back on that period of time with a lot of nostalgia. <laughs> so I'm happy to hear it. Yeah, no, I can't wait to talk to you about that stuff because uh, it's really not my genre. It's it's really not my 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 go to when I'm watching television. Well, uh, you're not the demographic for the show. No, <laughs> uh, no, no, nor am I. You know, it's not necessarily a show that I would watch uh, if I weren't working on it. But there is something about the teen genre that is just always. Um, I don't know. My my particular skill set seems appropriate for it, I guess. So I've had great success in that uh, in that world. Well, I can't wait to get into that with you because I'm fascinated knowing how this business works and, and and knowing how like genres have specific formulas. And there's a lot of really fun stuff that can happen in certain genres. So I'd love to get into that stuff. But first, I just want to catch up our listeners, catch up the audience to who you are and uh, how you got started in this business because this show is essentially, hopefully, a bit of inspiration for those folks out there who are either trying to get into the business or trying to say goodbye to the nine-to-five job and chase their dreams. And so maybe we can give them some inspiration today, is the hope. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so well, I'm happy to answer any of your questions. So Cool, man. Um, well, from the research that I was doing on you, you started as an editor, correct? You started in the editing department? That's right. I was an editor for, for many years. I probably from um, around, uh, I think I started in the business in 1981, and and then I edited until around 2004, 2005, wow. and then I started my directing career in 2004. Um, and so. I assume that your years of editing really helped you out when you, when you made that shift into directing, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, editing is a skill set that uh, is... Is very important for a director. I think directors who don't really understand editing are at a disadvantage because um, if you aren't really clear on how your material is being cut together or how you intend it to be cut together, then there's there's a, a lack of uh, perspective and a lack of focus, I think. Mm-hmm. And so editing is a great training for directors. I do think the type of people... Uh, who are attracted to editing, though, tend to be a little misanthropic. They tend to <laughs> like um, uh, privacy and, and, yeah. and control. And so some, some editors don't have the, the personality type that can easily tr- uh, transition to directing. But those that do, it's an, it's a, an enormous value. I mean, I, I save a great deal of time on set, and mm-hmm. I think I'm very efficient because of the fact that I, I know exactly how the material is going to be cut together. I completely agree, man. I started the same way. So I've, I've done a lot of editing myself and I use those skills when I'm on set. And you, especially when, uh, I'm sure you've dealt with this with your years and years of experience, but when you're on set, the plan oftentimes goes out the window because something falls apart and some, there's yeah. a reason why it shifts. And so having your head wrapped around your cut, you can actually sit there and go, oh, okay, so 
I can't fall back on my plan. Well, what if we just get this, 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 and this, and this, and that'll work for the edit? You know what I mean? And I'm- yeah, mm-hmm, exactly. And I, I think that uh, that that kind of uh, flexibility is something that you learn in the editing room too, because if you've done any editing at all for other people, you realize mm-hmm. that the best laid plans often uh, just don't work out, and you have to figure out a solution in the editing room. So you know you're basically primed to do that anyway. You're primed to to be a problem solver, right? And so uh, for the years of, of of doing editing, you were were you editing mostly in the same sort of genre of television? Like what were the what were the original shows that you were working on? No, I actually I started in features. I was an assistant editor in features, and I started editing um, my, uh, features myself in the um, in the nineties. Um, mm-hmm. I was uh, doing a lot of in, indie features that went to film festivals, and there was even a period of time where I was brought in by bond companies to re-edit films <laughs> that that were. Um, you know, in some state of flux. And, and, and I started editing in television around 2000. I, I, there was a guy who brought me in to do a couple of pilots. And um, I found that uh, editing in television is, is, a, is a lot harder, quite frankly, than editing in features because you're working so fast mm. and, and you have to uh, learn to be so decisive quickly. So um, I realized well if i'm going to be working this hard then i want to direct and so i just put it out there to some of the collaborators that i was working with at the time i said well i I, this is really something i'd like to do if i'm going to stay in television and um um they said yes (laughs) so it was like okay then you know now i have to put up or shut up (laughs) so when you made the the jump to television editing it's there's I mean, depending upon what network you're you're cutting for, there are specific rules, there's specific formulas that you have to follow for that, correct? Well, I, th- I think that the hardest part about working in television is the fact that there's not enough time ever. Yeah. I do feel like that, that TV editors are the unsung heroes of the television industry because they're working so fast. But you're also, depending on the, as you said, depending on the network or the, or the um, uh, type of show, there there are real structures you have to fit into. Like a lot of the shows that I did had to be cut to the second. It really? wasn't uh, a question of like, oh, well, this scene can go on for a little bit. It's like, no, it has to fit in this 44 and change block, and you have to get it down to um, the, the very second. And so that was always a, a challenge. Uh, taught me a lot about just learning to be very, very precise. Mm. It's fascinating stuff because when you watch, when you watch, like television's obviously had such an insane change lately. Like it's become, yeah, well, for sure, <laughs> this this hugely different, very artistic, and almost like the Wild West as far as like episode lengths are concerned and where they're put. All that stuff's really interesting. But before that, the fascinating portion of it for me was like it was very much a time slot thing where it's like here's the amount of time that you have before commercial break here's the amount of time that you have after commercial break depending upon what it is that you're doing you have to kind of recap or get the audience back in and were there there specific rules on on some of those older shows where it's like look we know most of our audience doesn't tune in until like 15 minutes later so make sure that we're we're catching folks up was it was it that specific or were you guys just well, I think it was more about uh, trying to, each act had to be a certain length. There had to be a certain length between certain commercial breaks. Um, as, as one producer said to me one time, 
don't ever forget that we're working in an advertising delivery system. Right. And uh, that that was definitely a challenge to learn to do that. But sometimes you have a an act that runs too long and you'd have to restructure it. I mean, it's a, it's a very challenging job, uh, broadcast television. The, mm-hmm. the, the streaming shows, which I think is what you're referring to now, yeah, there's a lot more flexibility. Now it doesn't, you know, like I, the show I did last year, didn't matter whether the episode was 52 minutes or 47 minutes. <laughs> it just had to be in a ballpark range. And so there's a lot more freedom. It gives you a lot more um, opportunities to explore things cinematically that maybe you didn't have the opportunity to do on um, um, shows that were on uh, commercial broadcast television. Yeah, yeah, because then the the needs change, right? So when you're when you're de- dealing with streaming services, they they almost want you to stretch the stuff out because at the end of the day, they need to keep their subscribers going and they need to keep content going for subscribers. So yeah, well, I mean, they still give you they they still give you a ballpark, you know, like they they want things to be within a, a certain amount of time. At least my experience has been that hmm. um, the show the show that I did last year was for Netflix and. And we were, you know, basically shooting for the 45 to 52 minute range, I would say. Mm-hmm. I think um, I think the longest episode was around 52 minutes. I can't remember for sure. But, um, you know, but there wasn't the, 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 the precision that had been demanded on a show like Gossip Girl or other shows that I worked on. Yeah, because Gossip Girl, like I said, I've seen enough episodes of it. Gossip Girl uh, has like almost a very specific formula. And as far as the storytelling on that show goes, it was mind-blowing for me how many times they would just uproot everything and sort of change everything over. And it it seemed like that show was more about maintaining a specific emotion from the audience as far as like intrigue and drama and suspense. And they were consistently trying to keep that energy level up uh to, almost yeah. to the, almost to the detriment of the overall story arc because it's just like okay who's sleeping with who now and okay weird all right um but uh I was well, completely- well I, as i said you you aren't the demographic for the show so it's a it's a it's, it's a storytelling uh, it's a it's a it's a certain type of storytelling that appeals to a a certain type of uh, demographic, for sure. You know, and, and that demographic really likes big cliffhangers. And, yes. And, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm fascinated by it. I think it's really cool. Uh, and how did you how did you find yourself working in that in that world for so long? Like, how did you find yourself drawn to it? Well, I I um, I owe a great part of my directing career to um, um, a woman named Stephanie Savage. Uh, and and um, and also Josh Schwartz, the two of them. Um, I worked initially with Stephanie on a show called Fast Lane uh, that I edited for the director McGee. Mm-hmm. And um, um, Stephanie then wanted me to edit the pilot for the OC, and um, I um, expressed to her my desire to direct, and she said, you know we'll try to make that happen. And um, the collaboration I had with uh, Stephanie and and Josh Schwartz started on the OC. I edited uh, many, many episodes of that show, and I also directed many episodes of that show. And by the fourth season, I was only directing. And so from that show, I moved to two other shows that 
they produced um, Gossip Girl and Chuck. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then from Gossip Girl, uh, that opened up a whole uh, bunch of shows that were geared for teens on ABC Family. I ended up doing 23 episodes of Pretty Little Liars. Um, <laughs> I, I, I just I just fell into that... Um, to that niche marketplace for a while. Um, and fortunately, at the same time, I was expanding my range into other shows. I, I did a lot of episodes of um, Rizzoli and Isles, which was a procedural. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I've done a lot of episodes of Mysteries of Laura. I did a lot of episodes of um, uh, The Fosters, which was kind of a hybrid. It was a very adult show, but a very um uh teen, teenage show both i mean it, it spoke to to both audiences and and so you know i was just lucky that i worked with josh and stephanie early in my career and they gave me a lot of opportunities and a lot of trust and and i really quite frankly i owe my career to them i did six episodes of the oc as a director i did 12 of gossip girl as a director i did uh i think um uh four of uh chuck um I've worked on their show Dynasty, uh, their their reboot of Dynasty. I, mm-hmm. I've been mm-hmm. very been very fortunate that they've that they've had a lot of faith and confidence in me, and I really feel that if I if I uh, owe my directing career to anybody, it's um, um, uh, Stephanie and Josh, and, and to also to McGee, who was an executive producer on um, the OC, and they all really su- supported my desire to direct and and. Uh, um, it was a, you know, I was in my forties when I made the leap from editing to directing and, and, and that's a, that's a hard career transition to make at that age. And yet they, they really helped make it happen. So I'm, I'm very grateful to, uh, the three of them. It's so cool, man. And you've got such a great, you've got such a great amount of experience at this point and so much time on set doing all these different, uh, shows. Um, yeah, I think I, I think now I, I counted recently, and I've directed over 140 hours of episodic <laughs> television, which is which is a huge amount, and it's kind of funny because it's just like, oh wow, I didn't even realize it had been that much. But um, I just uh, I, I really uh, for a number of years there was just doing um, a lot of episodes, just one right after another. So uh, I, I um, have had a lot of um, of. Uh, um, as you said, time on the set, and it, yeah. it it no longer scares me. You know, there was a period of time where I would have anxiety attacks on the set, just feeling just the, the huge amount of weight that was on my shoulders. But now it's just it's it's a very comfortable place for me. I feel very relaxed, even if um, things are going awry. I feel very relaxed because I know that. I'm surrounded by a group of people who are going to help me figure it out. I, it's such so, I'm envious of it because you have that like that time and that rhythm that comes with it. And then with directing is one of those things that it's all in theory until you get there. It's all in theory until yeah, you're actually doing for sure. it. Yeah. And so to have that time and to have that rhythm and, and to build that confidence. And I, I feel now that I've crossed into my 40s myself, I feel like I'm finally getting that sense of confidence and that sense of comfort, even being in the stressful scenarios where it's like, okay, this is the job. This is what we do. Let's try to figure this thing out. Um, 
Ah, it's so I'm I'm kind of envious of that. It's really cool that you've had that much time. Do you remember? So you you went through the process of convincing them. You're like, okay, look, I want to direct. I've been editing for you guys for long enough. I know how to do this. You have to sort of talk your way into it. Do you remember your first day on set and what it was like for you? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I was terrified, and I also, <laughs> I, I basically uh, the very first scene I. I directed, I broke out into a flop sweat. I mean, I was just, I mean, sweat, sweat was pouring off my body. My shirt was soaked. You could have, you could have taken it and, and wrung it out over a, a bucket and had half a bucket of water. It was, it was that, it was that much. And I remember feeling uh, very humiliated by that, but also I just thought, well, you have, you have a choice here. You can either run in the bathroom and hide, or mm -hmm. you can just keep going. And I was directing a scene with Peter Gallagher and Kelly Rowan and, and, and everybody was so generous and thoughtful to me. I mean, I knew all these people because I'd been an editor on the show before I directed my first episode, but, but I was terrified. And, and everybody saw that I was terrified, and yet everybody uh, supported me. And, and I'm always um, um, I'm, I'm very grateful to that group of people, uh, not just to the producers, but to the actors and the dp uh and the crew they, they they were also wonderful because they knew that i was really scared and yet they they um supported me just so wonderfully and so now i look back on it again with a lot of nostalgia you know <laughs> I, I think about it and i think yeah it was it was crazy and embarrassing and humiliating and and also uh i at the end of the day had a really good episode and they gave me another one so it it um it all worked out but i i yeah that first day is is I'm sure it's one of those things I'll remember on my deathbed, you know, <laughs> yeah. just walking onto the set and breaking out into a flop sweat. So. <laughs> um, well, it's, it's, it's interesting, too, because TV is such a strange landscape as far as cre creators are concerned, because, I mean, there, it's said that TV is mostly a writer's marketplace. and then the Well, absolutely it is. And I mean, I think that there's a, there's a real misunderstanding um, with certain new directors thinking that they're going to come in and essentially play the role of a director. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what? it's a very collaborative medium. And I've fortunately been able to work with writers who are um, extraordinarily generous. But at the end of the day, you're there to serve a vision that is not necessarily your own. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that it's very important to understand that, uh, you know, it's not... Uh, um, directing television certainly is not auteur filmmaking unless you're somebody like uh, Steven Soderbergh who's doing all of the episodes and, right. and, and, and executive producing it as well. It's If you're a director for hire on a television show, you're there to support the vision of that show. You're not there to, to grandstand and show off and, and try to uh, bend the show to your own personal style. You are there to bring your own personal style to that show within what you can do relative to what the style of that show is, but not to, not to try to change it, not to try to take it in a different direction. And I think that um, you can really see the directors who grasp that by how often they're invited back to a show. If mm -hmm. you're invited back to a show over and over again, it's because you've learned to um, work within the, the style of that show. and. In, in, in terms of what the, the writers of that show want. And, you know, I'm proud of that fact. I'm proud that if you look at my resume, you, you see that I um, am invited back to many of the shows that I work on. And, 
and um, I, I feel good about that. And you know, there, there are the occasional shows where I was never invited back, and that was probably <laughs> because I didn't get what they were trying to do. And so I think it's, um, I think it's, 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 um, it's a collaborative medium. The writers need the directors, but the directors need the writers. And the more that you can really see that it's a, a collaborative medium, the more you're going to enjoy it. It's uh, the, the more you feel like it's, it's, you know, me, myself, and I out there trying to, you know, impose my vision. Right. You know, well, good luck with that. Yeah. Some people are able to do it, but you know, not not the majority. It's 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 a it's a job where you are are there to serve a function, and um, I, I always try to really remember that um, you want to empower those around you to do their very best work in the same way that the writers that I've worked with over the years have really empowered me to do my best work. Mm. Yeah. Cause it's, it's gotta be a delicate line to, to, to walk because when you're dealing with film and feature film stuff, you're kind of the one heading the ship and you're the one that is ultimately it's kind of falling on the, it's falling on the shoulders of the director when you're doing, especially like in small indie films and that kind of stuff. But when you start talking about uh, television, you start talking even commercial world. I've seen this as a being a commercial director for years that you learn that what your role ultimately is is not being a, a filmmaker, but also being like a an in between between the clients and the crew, and being an in between between the creative and the money. And and and, and I, as soon as I figured that stuff out, I became more successful in that world. I've never done TV before, and it fascinates me because it seems like you're walking into um, a working machine, like a, like a, uh, a system that has been put into place to pump out episodes at high speed and, and a high rate. And, and everything's sort of been designed by the showrunners or the, or the initial directors that they hire to help design the, the look of the show. And then you sort of have to fit very tightly within specific rules that are set for you. How do you find the, the room to be creative in that? Like where, how does the creativity well, change? Well, I don't think it's I don't think it's as um, I don't think it's as claustrophobic as you just made it feel. <laughs> I think it's it's sometimes about you know just looking at the show and understanding what the style of the show is and what kind of camera work they use on the show and mm-hmm. and what kind of stories they're telling and, and and how they like to tell those stories. I mean, I I generally walk into a new job, a new situation, and I. And I asked him, okay, what's the drill here? How do you like to shoot it? What is the, what is the way that uh, you've, you've found that the show works best? And, you know, sometimes it'll be like, oh, well, we like to use a lot of steady cam, and we really like to uh, have a lot of camera movement. We want camera moving all the time. And, you know, that's not a style that necessarily I respond to. I mean, I, I don't like unmotivated camera movement. Right. But if it's a if it's a style of the show, then I'm not going to violate that style. And then within that, you find your own ways to be creative to express your your particular vision, your particular style. And uh, and then sometimes, like I said, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes you just don't have the room to do what you want to do, and therefore you you kind of feel frustrated about you know if if it's like I had one showrunner one time tell me. He, he said, I don't want any profile shots. I want to see two eyes on everybody. And, and, and I want to get into close-ups wow. on everything. Well, wow. that ultimately just is not interesting to me because it feels to me like, well, you're cutting half of the shots 
um, out that you could use to kind of create texture and pace and, and, and inflection. And I, I just feel like I'm more interested in, in working with those people who have given me um, the freedom to try things. I certainly was given a lot of freedom on both the OC and on uh, Gossip Girl uh, and on Chuck and um, with, with Josh and Stephanie. They trusted my my taste you know they trusted mm-hmm. my ability to to kind of deliver what they were looking for but also i'd spent you know a great deal of time with them in the editing room where we figured out the look and feel of the oc right, so right, right. by the time i started uh, directing i knew what it was that they were looking for but i i feel like it's you know it's a it's a job that uh, requires a certain amount of um psychoanalytic work you come in and you figure out like who are the people i'm working with and what is it that they're looking for from me and what do they what do they want to um have this show Mm -hmm. look like Mm -hmm. um more recently i've been working on a show for netflix called sweet magnolias with uh, the showrunner cheryl anderson and cheryl and i had long conversations before we ever started work together on it Uh, i directed six of the first 10 episodes that were on Netflix uh, earlier this year. And um, she and I talked about what her references are. And then I brought certain kind of photographic references to the table and said, you know, I really like the, the, the style and look of these films. I think these, these might be really um, something that would work for what we're trying to do on this show. And that was, that was an enormously, um, satisfying creative process it wasn't kind of like her telling me you know you got to shoot it like this nor me telling her you know i'm going to shoot it like this it was it was both of us trying to figure out in in what way i could direct it that would illuminate the work that she had done in the writing of it she and her writing staff and and that was an enormously satisfying uh, creative experience. And if one approaches the work that way, which is the way I like to approach it, then it's then it's really joyful. It's not about like oh I don't get to express my vision the way I want to. It's about mm-hmm. trying to expand your vision to work hand in glove with somebody else's vision, and, and that's that's a lovely experience. And uh, I think that um, um, uh, it's 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 way too easy to let your ego be the driving force in Hollywood mm-hmm. just because that's uh, your ego is going to get you a long way just by pushing you in the door and getting people to, to pay attention to you. And I understand it's, it's important. I, I, somebody said something to me recently that really uh, uh, I responded to very much. It was actually a writer and he said, it's important to have an ego. It's important to have a strong ego. Mm-hmm. It's important to have a small ego. You want it to be strong and you want it to be small. You want it to be something that's really clear about what you're trying to bring to the table, but you don't want it to be something that's overwhelming to other people who are at that table as well. And I think that goes down the line in terms of, you know, the way that you deal with a director of photography, the way you deal with a costume designer, the way you deal with a production designer, the way that you deal with with actors. You know, all of those people are the heads of their own departments. And you really want to find a way to to make them feel that I'm here to collaborate. I'm here to really work on uh, what it is we can do together. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's a group of directors in Hollywood who have the kind of clout to say, like, well, it's my way or the highway. And that's great. 
you know, God bless them. I'm happy that they that they have that experience. But that's not the preponderance of the way the business works. And even somebody like David Fincher, I, I, I was reading a lot of the interviews that he did with um, various journalists about um, the movie Mank that just mm-hmm. came out on Netflix. And, and he, he very much talks about how collaborative it is. Now, he's a guy that, as far as you can say in uh, Hollywood, is really, you know, somebody that I would say is uh, somewhat of an auteur. Sure. And yet he really talks about the fact that, that he, doesn't, um, he doesn't write his own scripts. And the, 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 um, the writing of the script is the egg. It's the, it's the uh, germ of the idea <laughs> and, and, and how important that collaboration is to him. I mean, he's very eloquent about it in some of these uh, articles that I've been reading lately about Mank. And I, I really admire that, um, that uh, um, approach. And as I say, you know, like who's more of an auteur than he is? And yet he really sees the contribution of all the people that he's working at the table with. And I think that that goes back to even people like um, Hitchcock and Kubrick. You look at, you know, who their collaborators were and they worked with the same people over and over again because they really saw that these people brought something to that process that they could um, then um, um, bring into some type of actualization. You know, Hitchcock was very dependent upon his screenwriters, as was Kubrick. You know, now these guys are are seen as like uh, auteurs, artists in their own right, as a singular vision. And certainly there is that there. And yet they were always working with other people, working with collaborators who were who were bringing their work um, up. And and as I get older, I mean, I'm 65 now and I'm I'm uh, I'm at a point in my career where I realize, you know, I've been so lucky to, to have gotten to do what I do. But none of my work would mean anything without mm. the collaborators that I've worked with. It's just been such a joy to, to be able to, you know, sit at a table with some of these very fine, very talented people and hear what their ideas are. And, and, a, and a, a director who's confident is going to be able to sit in that situation and really bring all the best ideas up to the surface as, as they're working. That, that's my experience. I completely agree with you, man. I, I think, and anybody that I've ever talked to that I feel like continues to get asked back to direct episodes of TV, continues to get jobs, regardless of whether or not their movie was successful or not, are people that have a grasp of that. And you forget, I think a lot of people that see this industry from the outside end up reading a lot of like the promotional press crap. You know what I mean? Which yeah, is like, this exactly. Guy, this guy's a genius. I like, I don't believe in geniuses. I believe that there are those folks out there that have the ability to form a vision and the, vil- the ability to drive a train through the chaos that is uh, filmmaking. But at the end of the day, you are relying upon all these people that are around you because if, if we could do it as a, a singular person, then it would be something different. It would be painting. It would be, you know, watercolor, you know, but the the thing I love about directing is that it's that ability to surround yourself with folks. Cause when I plan something out, I'm doing prep right now and I'm sitting in a desk in a space by myself. I've never experienced a lot of these things that are in the script and I'm playing imagination and I'm like, okay, maybe this is what this is going to be. But hopefully if you've cast your crew around you the correctly, or if you get hired into a really talented group of people to work with, you can turn to them and their life experiences 
and the stuff that they've done before in their past and all that experience they bring to your problem. And that to me is so inspiring to sit there and go like, you've been through this before. What does this mean to you? You know? And yeah, because at the end of the day, we're making these products for an audience, which is represented by how many different people. So you need to have that, that input early on to even register it. You know what I mean? All right, gang, you know the deal. It is that time. It is time to thank the men and women that help support the show. I'm talking about our sponsors. Now, before you fucking fast forward to this section, consider that I may give away some really tasty nuggets on what I use and how I use it. I do it every time I do an ad read. So if you're a newcomer to the show and you're like, I don't like ads. Well, look, I need to do ads. I need to have these here in order for the show to be free. How many of you would continue to click and listen to the show if it cost you $5 per episode? I could hear you shuddering. I could hear you being like, oh, what does this asshole need the money for? <laughs> because we do this for free. Because I have to pay for hosting fees. I have to pay for all this stuff, right? I hate reaching into my rent bank account to do so. So stick around. <laughs> How's that for an ad intro? <laughs> All right, so first up, I'm going to give some more shout-outs to electrovoice.com. Now, these people over at Electrovoice EV, uh, they've, been, they've built speakers for a while. They've done all sorts of really great sound gear, and they're now doing microphones. And so they sent me over an RE20 Variable D Dynamic Cardioid Microphone. And like I've done in the prior episode, you can hear the difference in my voice. There's a big difference between my voice when I recorded the episode and my voice during this ad read. And I think it sounds pretty sexy. I think we're gonna hit a point where I'm gonna transition this microphone into the interview process. But I've been separating them so that you guys can hear the difference. What do you think? How's it sound? I know that there's a lot of listeners on that, (laughs) my God. I know there's a lot of listeners of this show that are podcast content creators. And you guys are consistently asking me, what microphone are you using? What gear are you using? Right now, I'm using the RE20 Variable D Dynamic Cardioid Microphone. And I'm running it through my Rodecaster. Now, Rodecaster doesn't sponsor the show, but I just want to let you know. So it goes into the Rodecaster. I think I'm using a slight bit of compression on it. Um, And it sounds pretty sexy, right? I think it sounds pretty cool. And then for those of you who really want to get nerdy about how I record the show, I actually run that in through my laptop into Adobe Audition. And then on my voice track in Audition, there is a mastering preset, which adds just a little bit of reverb, like a little echo in the background, which I really like. Um, And then simply done, I just, I, I, I added a limiter to the master and we're good to go. So there really isn't much for effects on this microphone. Sounds pretty rad, right? Go check it out. Go to electrovoice.com. Let me see if I can read through some of their key features here without fucking it up this time. So the key features of this microphone is that it is a favorite of broadcast show hosts and voiceover studios. I buy it. Like this looks like the type of microphone that would be hanging in Howard Stern's studio, which I love about it. 
ideal for instrument recording, so especially kick drums and acoustic guitars. So if you guys are musicians listening to this, this is a really great option for recording your instruments. Um, studio condenser response and no powering required and immune to overloading. So we're getting really nerdy here. I'm not 100% sure what all that stuff means. Maybe I should get someone from EV on here to talk about it. Uh, large acoustic, here's where I fucked up last time. Large acoustal alloy. What the fuck word is that? And why can I not read it? Uh, it's got a big acoustic diaphragm. Let me, let me paraphrase it. Uh, low mass aluminum voice coil. Okay, we're getting really nerdy here. So there's a list of things on this microphone that make my voice sound like this. Let me just do that. How's that sound? Um, I really dig it. If you want to know the specs, uh, click the link below the episode and go to electrovoice.com. Uh, it is the RE20. Variable D, dynamic cardioid microphone. And I dig it. And I want to give a big shout out to these guys because they reached out to me. They found me. And uh, it sounds like they want to support the arts. It sounds like they want to support podcasters. Um, and so the least I could do is give them a shout out for doing so. So go check them out. It's pretty cool. And I know that there's a lot of actors out there. I had Lance actually reached out to me a few months ago because he's in the same situation that you guys are as actors. So many of you now have to do remote work, right? So a lot of you guys are doing um, remote auditions and recording remote auditions. But more importantly, there's room for you to make some money doing voiceover work. And if you're really smart, you pick yourself up a kit like I have. And this microphone would be great for that. You pick yourself up a kit like I have, and then you could put yourself out there as a VO artist. And now here's how this works. If you have the ability to record your own voice and do a really clean uh, recording of it and have like a nice quiet space that you're doing it in, um, a lot of people that do commercials are looking for remote um, voiceover artists. And it's even better if you don't have to go to a studio to do it. It keeps your costs down. It makes you um, very accessible to video game developers, to commercial fucking producers. Uh, I've done this in the past. Like when I did the Dale Strong piece for uh, Some People Some People Settle, that was dealing with a remote voiceover person. So basically while we were recording the session, I would just FaceTime with them. And they would uh, take my direction and record the VO and then send it to me in an email. So definitely consider that stuff. And if you guys are looking for a microphone that's affordable and that sounds like this, uh, like I said, head on over to electrovoice.com. Okay. Also supporting the show, as always, are our good friends over at Puget Systems. If you go to PugetSystems.com, you're going to want to build yourself a brand new PC. I know he said PC. Right. PCs... <laughs> This is in the 90s, all right? PCs don't crash. PCs are reliable. PCs are affordable. PCs are upgradable. And you, you don't have to join a cult <laughs> to get one and to own one. And the reason why I went with Puget Systems is that this company has real life breathing tech support. Like you're actually talking to somebody on the phone. So if something happens to your system, if you wanna upgrade your system, can you imagine? You want to upgrade your system like there's room in your machine 
to make it better so when new software comes out on the marketplace, you can put in hardware and make it even better and you don't have to throw the whole fucking thing out. It doesn't end up floating in a China Sea somewhere. You know what I mean? Go to PewDiePieSystems.com, check them out, build yourself a brand new PC that works for the software you're using. It's pretty awesome. I, I cannot say enough great things about these guys. I have two Puget Systems here at the house. We recently cut all of the B. Miller stuff on a PC. I've done all of my short films on a PC. Um, and my new one is fucking beefy. Oh, it's really cool, man. My render time is so fast. So fast. I know there's a lot of you guys listening and drooling over the idea of that. Can you imagine? And it didn't break the bank. It doesn't break the bank. Go to PugetSystems.com and check them out. Also supporting the show, as always, our good friends over at Quasar Science. And I always start it the same way. One of the best advancements in the movie industry over the past five, ten years has been lighting. As soon as they figured out how to make LED units work well, as soon as they figured out how to make sure that LED units will stay balanced with light, so when you get a tungsten unit, it's actually tungsten, it's not fucking pink. You get a daylight unit, it's not fucking green, right? They're great. And if, I know you guys have seen this. Like anywhere you look, if you're watching Netflix, if you're watching movies right now and you're like, how does this stuff look so colorful and vibrant? What the fuck? It's LED units. It really is. And a lot of listeners are always asking me, Mike, what do you have in your kit? You guys really, you know what? Send me a note if, if you guys still feel this way. Do you guys want me to do another lighting episode? The ones that we've done in the past when we had... Uh, Mike, uh, the gaffer for Fast and Furious on, that that show fucking killed. And even before that, when I had Ruben on, that show fucking killed. So do you guys want another lighting episode? We can get into it. And there's a lot of really great lighting companies out there, especially companies like Quasar Science. So go to QuasarScience.com, check them out. You're going to want to get your hands on one of those rainbow LED units. They're very inexpensive. They're very lightweight. They take up a very small footprint. You fit them in the back of your fucking hatchback. Um, so if you're just a shooter and you're running around and you're doing your own stuff and you want it to make you want to make it look cinematic, right? You want it to look like fucking Pacific Rim. You want to have some Quasar LEDs in your kit. Just go check them out, QuasarScience.com. And one of the best ways to support the show, if you don't want to reach into your own wallet, if you're a cheap fucking prick. <laughs> Or if you, uh, you're out of your fucking, you know, for a lot of us, um, what do you call it? It's going to run out fucking um, unemployment. It's going to run out for a lot of us soon. So if you guys are, you know, stacking those nuts, which I always suggest you do, like a little squirrel, you're just putting those nuts in the bank account so that you're not making bad decisions on jobs, right? Remember how I talked about doing that? Where, like, people are like, I don't know how... I don't, I don't know how to charge adequately for my services or for my time. Um, and it gets really complicated when you see your bank accounts falling off or if your unemployment falls away. And you're like, man, I'm kind of fucking desperate. And these guys are only paying me like 0.05 of what I deserve on this, but I don't have any other work coming in. Don't you hate being in that position when you're trying to negotiate a rate, like a fair fucking rate from a client? And oftentimes from a client that, that is abusing you. So make sure that you guys are stacking your nuts. Make sure that when you get paid for these jobs, remind yourself as a freelancer that even though this is a big fat fucking check right now, when's the next time I'm going to have a, a gig? 
Make sure you're consistently stacking like four or five months worth of rent behind you. Make sure that that's always there because then you can make really smart and informed decisions when deciding whether or not to take a job or when bidding out a project. And how does this relate? How is this relevant to what I'm talking about with Audible? Audible is giving a free trial. So if you're looking for some free entertainment, right, for 30 days, sign up for the Audible trial. The link is below the episode. I think it's audibletrial.com backslash in love with the process. Link is below the episode. You get 30 days for free. You get a free audiobook. And if you haven't signed up before, um, you signing up using our link below will give us some cash. So it doesn't cost you anything. We get paid for referencing you to it, right? Stick around for 30 days, listen to some stuff. I'm still plowing through Ready Player Two on Audible right now. I fucking love that book. Really excited about it. Um, but after 30 days, if you're like, man, I really can't afford this. I've got way too many things, then cancel, it's fine. But I know you're gonna wanna stick around because you're gonna get hooked on their fucking alien series that they have on there. You're gonna get hooked on all their content that they have on there. It'll be another fucking subscription service that you're paying for, but you're gonna really love it. I'm telling you, you're gonna love it. Um, and uh, we get paid either way. So if you end up canceling, we still get paid. I don't think I'm supposed to tell you guys that, but fuck it. We still get paid. So it's the best way to show some support for the show. And make sure while you're listening to these ad reads that you click below. If you're curious about any of it, even if you're not curious and you're like, look, we still want to help these guys out, just click the links because it tells all of our sponsors that you guys are listening. So it keeps the sponsors around. Um, and those of you who love the show and you want to dig deeper into it, newcomers of the show, go to inlovewiththeprocess.com. There we have all sorts of supporting materials. There's a sponsor section where you can click on the sponsor sections. You can read more about our sponsors. You can support the show. You can donate to the show. Um, but then you can also go through while you're listening to the episodes and check out the supplemental material. Each episode has its own page. Each episode is listed in its own category. So if you want to just listen to all the director episodes, if you want to listen to the chef's episodes, they're all arranged there for you to check out. Go to loveoftheprocess.com. And uh, yeah, thanks for sitting through the reads. All right, let's get back into it. There, there's that idea of of being somehow trusting of the the creative intuition that comes I, I mean look I'm a big planner I believe in prepping everything I have an a plan a B plan a C plan a D plan so that everything um, that possibly could go wrong yeah I'm ready for that and at the same time when I walk on the set I let all of that go and I am just attentive to what's happening in the moment. Mm -hmm. And if I am at, if I'm at a point where I'm a little lost, and I've told other directors this too, I've said, don't be afraid to just say, I don't know, somebody help me here. I need to figure out how we can make this work. And people step up to that. If you show up and if you're one of those directors who's like, here's my shot list and this is what we're gonna do and we're only gonna do this, and I'm the one who's gonna decide what we're gonna do, and no, I want this exactly this way, whatever. I always feel like the, the the result can feel a little constipated. You know, yeah. <laughs> I'm not somebody who really responds to that way of working uh, 
and and uh, I you know look I I have had some experiences that have been better than others and I have worked with um, some people who I feel like are intransigent you know who just feel like no no it's got to be like this I got to have this line read exactly this way and the inflection has to be exactly here on this this word well you know that's that's not really allowing the actor to find their way through it and do their job and right. and, and bring what their sensibility might be to the to the process and look that's fine if that's what somebody wants to do and that's the way that they do it then i'm not going to challenge that i'm just going to say that it's maybe not the best environment for me to be in you know because i i like things to be a little more fluid than that i like to really allow people to bring what they bring to the to the table and uh, i i've been very fortunate in my collaborators it sounds that way man it sounds really cool um so you, you mentioned that you do prep. I'm fascinated by this stuff. I'm fascinated by how other directors do stuff because it's not often that directors get to hang out with the other directors and see what they do. Um, so what is your prep process? So like you get hired to do an episode and you get brought on, like what is your first steps? Like how do you get into it? Okay, well, if, I, if it's a new show that I'm not familiar with and I watch as many episodes of the show as I can, I, I, if, I, if it's a show that's in its first or second season, which has been a lot of my work, then I watch uh, all of those episodes. <coughs> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Just let me take a drink here. Sure, no problem. Um, so, you know, if the show is, is new, then I watch all of the episodes. I watch everything that's been um, um, shot so far. If there's scripts to read, I read all of the scripts so that I know that I'm well grounded in what the show looks like, how they shoot it, how they, they um, um uh, approach the work mm-hmm. and then I, I sit down and work with the script by myself just trying to figure out okay what is the purpose of the scene why is the scene here how does it add to the narrative uh, what is the emotional content where what is the dramatic event of the scene I just go through and answer all those questions and then I pretty much think in terms of the way that I imagine it appearing on screen you know just if, if I were watching it what would be the thing that I would expect to see next? What are the what are the areas um, within any given scene where I feel like I'd want to be in a close shot? Where are the areas where I feel like I could be a little wider to establish geography? Where what I might maybe want to be in medium shots so that that handles exposition. I try not to use my close shots on. Um, on stuff that has no emotional content. Right. And I'm always, I'm, I'm not always able to control that, you know, like somebody else comes in after I turn in my cut and oftentimes I'll, I'll see an episode on the air and it's all in close shots and every line is on camera, which I think is a, is a, is a very, um, um, remedial way to do a show. I think that ultimately when a show is all in close-ups and every line's on camera, then everything has equal value. Mm-hmm. So I'm always thinking in terms of, um, of, of trying to create some visual dynamic. Uh, one of the things that I always say is that I feel like good, a, a well-directed uh, show is one where you could turn down the sound mm-hmm. and watch the images and understand the emotional line of the story. You may not be able to understand all of the aspects of the plot, but you will understand the emotional, the emotional journey by what you're looking at. And so, for instance, if two people are alienated, then you're looking at a frame where they're separated or they're not looking at each other. Or, you know, if there's um, 
uh, a big um, emotional moment between two characters, then then you um, uh, show um, uh, your close-ups. You use your, your close-ups there, you know, to really express uh, meaning between those two people. But a, a well-directed episode, you should be able to turn down the sound, watch it, and understand the emotional line of the story. I, I feel very strongly about that. So I just break down the script with that in mind, you know, in terms of like, okay, where would I want to be wide? Where would I want to be medium? Where would I want to be in a close shot? Where would I want to move people within the frame in such a way that I'm that the blocking itself is helping me understand that emotional story? And if I have problems with that, it's usually because, you know, a scene doesn't have an emotional event. And on a lot of television, there will often be scenes that are purely about exposition. Yeah. So I'll go to the writer then and I'll say, you know, it feels to me this scene doesn't really have any other point other than exposition. Is there some way that we can that we can add something here that will give us a certain uh, reason for it to exist? Because otherwise, in my experience, it will get cut out. Mm-hmm. Because scenes scenes that don't have drama in them ultimately are unnecessary. You know, there's always um, there's there, there's always that aspect of uh, television writing that that overexplains, in my estimation, and a lot of that is driven by networks having notes. A lot of that's yeah. driven by um, uh, other forces that that don't even have anything to do with the writer. And and so I'm always trying to be sensitive to that. So, um, uh, you know, I'll go and I'll just very respectfully ask the writer, uh, I just wonder what the point of this scene is and if you can help me with that. And and so, you know, I have a very good plan, you know, in my head about what all of those dynamics are. And then I have to then prepare for, okay, what if that plan doesn't go as smoothly as I'm imagining, you know? And uh, uh, I have backup plans then, you know? Okay, if, what if you have an actor who just doesn't want to get up and walk around? You know, what if you have an actor who just sees the scene completely differently? And and so I'm always, uh, the, the thing that I always come back to with both writers and with actors And even with DPs, you know, what is the point of the scene? What is the point of the scene? Why does the scene exist in the script? And and that usually um, gets people into a place where they can maybe reexamine, you know, some of their ideas if they're being resistant. Um, But I, again, I I go back to the idea. My ego is, is strong in the sense that I'm confident that I've spent enough time with the script and really thought through Mm-hmm. what it's about, uh, I can keep my ego pretty much out of it when I'm, when I'm, I, I pose a lot of my directions as questions and even a lot of my um, uh, doubts about certain things to writers as questions, you know, mm-hmm. like I'm just wondering if uh, this or that could mean this right. and and then see what their response is. And I think that people understand generally that I'm not trying to come from a place of, of, of um, exerting my power or control, you know. Um, right, because at that point, it's just, you start getting into that ego game and, and, and that you're crushing the soul out of whatever it is that you're doing because, you know. Yeah, and, and Hollywood is full of it. Hollywood yeah. is full of ego and um, there's a lot of people who that's the enjoyment they get out of it. 
but I generally find that it's it's like martial arts. If you yield in a graceful way, your your opponent will fall right into you know what it is you want. I'll just give you an example. I mean, oftentimes <laughs> I will I will give an actor a, a, a note. I'll say something like, you know, it occurs to me that maybe a way to approach the scene would be that you play like such and so. And they'll be like, no, 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 I don't, I don't want to do it that way. I don't see it that way at all. And I, I'll just say, well, okay, if, if, if that's something that um, you feel strongly about, I certainly don't want you to do anything that's not authentic. And then I'll just walk away. <laughs> and nine times out of ten, the actor will do exactly what I ask them to do because they'll understand that I've really thought about it what I'm saying makes sense, mm-hmm. and they're, they just want to know that they have permission not to do it that way sometimes. And, I mean, it's a weird psychological game, but it, it works, you know, because it, it, basically what I'm saying is I want you to feel as invested in this choice as I do, and if you don't, then obviously I don't want you to do it because it's not going to read as authentic. And <laughs> as I said, nine times out of ten, they'll do it, because they'll want to show me that they can, uh-huh. because a lot of actors, you know, really do want approbation. They do want to be approved. And then um, more than that, if they're an actor worth their salt at all, they'll understand that I've really done my, my homework and my research and I'm not giving them some arbitrary note. Right. Uh, I don't. I don't direct. I, I'm not a director who directs actors to play it 15 different ways. I have a very clear sense of what I think the scene is about by the time I arrive on the set, and I I don't ask them to um, uh, let's try it like this. Let's try it like that. Let's go over here and try it like this. Let's let's have you stand on your head and spin. <laughs> I, I I think that that's an approach that some actors use, and uh, I mean some directors use with actors and. And that's their choice. I don't find that works well. I feel like that you have to have a solid grounding in the material that you're working. You have to have a a real sense that the actor feels that you mm-hmm. know the story you're telling. Mm-hmm. And if if they have confidence in that, then then they they will do whatever you ask. And and I've had you know enormous success with actors in that regard because they understand that I've done my homework and that I have their back, and that I'm not going to be asking them to do something that doesn't have um, uh, a real reason. And also, I'm the first one to say, you know, I was wrong about that. Let's go back to what your original choice was. I I wanted to see it, but maybe that doesn't work after all. And I think that actors appreciate that, too, when you're willing just to say, like, "Eh, no, I was wrong. Let's try something else, you know, and... um, so I think it's it's a, it's a curious process because I think that you're 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 you have to maintain uh, control of the set. I, I maintain control of the set. I mean, I, I really believe in the director's primacy on set. I don't think you know you don't want to allow a bunch of other people to be mm-hmm. you know dictating what we're going to do next. But I do think that you have to be enormously uh, fluid and yielding to whatever the moment is um, revealing how people are feeling, you know, and if people are not feeling safe, oftentimes they'll resist. If they're not feeling uh, attended to, they'll resist. Um, But if they feel like that, that you have their back, they're going to at least try to, to give you what, what you're asking for. And then oftentimes it'll feel really good to them because I've, because I've 
really, really um, exhausted all kinds of possibilities in my own prep. And, and you know, I, I usually have an answer for whatever question they might have. Some actors will really test you. They just want to see how much preparation you've done. Really? You know, so, yeah, you know, sometimes they'll they'll say, well, I don't think I'd do that because of this or that. And, you know, you better have an answer for that, you know. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you an example of that. I, I, had, um, I had one actor who was playing a scene very angry with another um, uh, character. And uh, I said, okay, I understand that as a choice, but I wonder if there's a way where you're, you're, you're like not quite going to such a DEFCON 5 place with her. And he said, well, I think I'm really, really angry with her. I'm really, really angry. And I'm like, okay, but if you look at the whole script, you know, we have, we have several scenes coming up where you're also really angry at her. And so I wonder if it's not something that's more graduated. And, and oftentimes I'll go into my own experience. I'll talk about something like, I, you know, like I know that when I am in a, some type of confrontation with uh, um, someone that, that I'm, uh, working with or someone that I'm living with, you know, I'll, I'll uh, start, you know, to try to reason with them. So I wonder if you could try it more from a place of trying to reason with the person as opposed to attacking the person. And I said, and then that gives us somewhere to go in the script over the period of the, the next several scenes, we can see a graduated rise in that that note made sense to him, yeah, yeah. you know, because I wasn't saying to him like, Oh, your choice is bad. It's, 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 uh, I, I was saying to him, let's think about the overall arc of where you want to go with this, with this experience, with this character throughout the show. And, um, and so it was clear to him that I had done my homework, yeah. whereas he was only looking at the scene by itself. He wasn't thinking about the overview. And so oftentimes I feel that's the director's job is to make, um, everyone understand what the overview is. And then I'll, I'll give you another example with a DP that I worked with. This, um, this uh, DP uh, wanted to, I had a crane, and um, it was a scene where two, uh, two detectives were arriving at this um, um, cage match at a, at a casino in Atlantic City. Mm -hmm. And um, the um, DP really wanted to do a crane shot that started on one side of the cage match and came up over the top of the cage and and um, revealed our characters as they were walking to their seats to have this conversation with whoever the person they were, were talking with was. Mm -hmm. And um, um, I said, well, no. I said, I want to use the crane to actually start with our characters and pull out up above the, the, the cage match you know, seeing that in the background as they come over and talk to this person. And he was kind of like, well, no, we have this really great shot. And he really argued with me about it. He said, I really feel like we should do this. And I said, well, you know, this has got to fit into that 44-minute block on commercial television. And I'm telling you right now, the whole beginning of that crane shot would be cut off mm -hmm. because it's not about what the story is. The story is about these two detectives coming in and we're following them. And so, so I said, I want to start the crane with them and, and pull them over. And he really, you know, he really dug his feet in about it. But I, I just, I, I really kept coming back to this is the story. It's not about the cage match. The cage match just happens to be the background of what the, what's happening. And, and uh, I said, we don't want to uh, feature something that 
is is leading us down a different path. And so sometimes it just is about returning to what's the scene about? What's yeah. the scene about? And and the um, the the um, shot that he was suggesting, I acknowledged. I said, "What you're what you're describing would be a beautiful shot." And I said, "If we had all the time in the world, then I'd say, sure, let's let's try that too." But I I really feel like that you know that's not what the story's about, and so I don't want to do it that way. And and I I didn't let it become a a big um, um, argument. I just stayed. Uh, firm about what I thought the scene was about. And and that way, he eventually, I think he eventually realized I was right. And so he he gave up this, this desire to shoot this other shot. Now, a lot of directors would have done that shot that he described. And I call that grandstanding, because I feel like that, that kind of shot, just to use a crane, to basically just have a cool crane shot is not right. a good enough reason to use a crane right. you know it's it's, it's 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 uh it, you know the the crane is a storytelling device like a, like steadicam is like any other type of um of decision is and um uh i have also been you know the flip side of that story is that there was another episode i worked on where i was doing this fancy crane shot and i uh was um basically starting up over the top of this food truck. And then I came down and landed on the back door of it and did all this stuff. And I did it twice and I realized this is bullshit. I'm just grandstanding, <laughs> you know? And so I immediately turned to my DP and I said, look, I'm sorry, but I let's cut bait. Let's just get into, you know, our ordinary coverage because I said, I think I'm trying to show off here as opposed to, to really uh, making a decision that is supporting the, um, the the story we're telling and um I, so I, I think you have to you know kind of constantly be policing yourself for you know am i right. am i insisting on doing this because i feel like it's me showing off or am i doing this because I'm, i just want to win the argument or am i doing it to serve the story and if if one is really in the place where one is serving the story then the decisions are really easy and, and, and knowing when to really hold your position is really easy because you're not coming from some ego place of trying to show off. You're, you're coming from the place of trying to protect the story. And every single crew member and every single actor and, he, and every single writer will understand that if you're really coming from that place. If they feel that you're trying to win the point or trying to win the argument uh, just so that you can show that you're the director, uh, they, they can sense that too. You know, I really believe it. It's a very psychological process, really. Yeah, no, I, I completely support all that, man. And I, I, when I started, I started as a, as a cinematographer myself. And, and then when I started to work with other cinematographers, I, I tried to explain to them. I'm like, look, the, you, can't, you can't be focused on the tech stuff, first off. And I know we're in a world where tech is tech and we're being sold tech all the time. And whether or not you're a real filmmaker, you own this and you're working with this gear, who cares? None of the, they're tools. They're like shovels you use to dig a hole. It's the same thing. And when you look at cinematographers' reels, like if you go look at like a, a, a reel of a, of a DP, most of the time it's their hottest shots cut together to some sort of song track that doesn't make any sense. And I would say to the cinematographers that I work with, wouldn't you rather have your reel be cut together scenes instead of having it be just random like dolly shots and random crane shots because you know how to use a crane? Wouldn't you rather be selling the fact 
that your craft is the vis visual art of telling that story. It is like supporting the words on that page on such a subconscious level that most people don't even understand or realize what it is that, that you're doing for it. And the lens yeah. choices that you choose are based upon the emotions that you're trying to convey. And the coverage that you choose is based upon all that stuff. And I think you've got it dead on when you say that it is about the purpose. Why are we fucking shooting this scene? Why is it here? Mm. You know? And yeah. I think a lot of folks just, because they don't teach that. They really don't teach that in, in any of the film school stuff, in any of this new film school shit, where it's always like super sexy and it's all like people wanting to sort of live the persona of these different crew positions and... I want to be a DP that does this and does that. It's like at the end of the day, all we're doing is trying to subconsciously affect the viewer's emotions with tricks, basically, with like sleight of hand and music cues and lens choices and editing. And it, it doesn't surprise me that you have this outlook because you've spent so much time in the edit room. That, that's an editor speaking where you're like, look, the top end of the shot's not even going to make the cut, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's true. And, you know, I, I see it more and more. And, and, and it's just it ultimately has a counterproductive effect. I watched the movie the other night on Netflix and the camera was just going crazy. It was yeah. just moving all the time around people and in such a way that I thought, I don't even know what I'm watching here. It's exhausting. <laughs> it's exhausting because I am so aware of the camera and it doesn't feel like it's doing anything to take me deeper into the story. It feels like it's just doing all these pyrotechnics for no reason that I can understand. And it really put me off of the film in a, in a way that I felt like the material itself warranted better than that. Mm -hmm. It just felt like it could have been a, a much better film if it had just slowed down a little bit and not tried to, to be so fancy with all of these shots revolving around people. There was one you know, 360 degree Steadicam shot at one point where I was just like, why is it going around and around and around them? It's not, it's not doing anything. Now I understand the, the impulse to do that because sometimes you feel like you do want to show off. You do want to just show like, wow, this is such a cool shot. But even Hitchcock, you know, he, he did the movie rope back mm -hmm. in the late forties and it was all essentially one take and, and, um, uh, even he said in the Truffaut book, he said, look, I, I was trying it to see if I could do it. But at the end of the day, I realized it just it just violated all the ideas I have about the importance of montage. You know, and I, I really uh, wouldn't wouldn't do it that way again, you know, because and yet we see these movies like like 1917 and mm -hmm. and, and uh, Birdman, which which, you know, again, God bless them. They're they're. they're marvelous technical achievements and i'm not trying to take anything away from anybody or anybody who enjoyed that but then at the end of the game you know me personally i just felt like why does this all need to be one shot there's lots of places where i feel i want to be on the other person now i want to see what the other person's feeling because that's tracking the psychological line of the story better than just this this one unbroken shot is it a cool technical achievement? Of course it is. Is it? Does it have moments where you're really caught up in that? Of course it does. Uh, has it been done really well? Yeah, I can think of you know the five minute Steadicam shot uh, from the movie Atonement yep. is a, a tremendous achievement that took me deeper into the story. You know, but 
I've seen other uh, movies where I just feel like this is just showing off and it doesn't ultimately add to my experience of the narrative. It actually keeps me at a distance from it. Now, that's my personal preference. I was an editor. I believe in the art of editing. I believe in the idea that you really want to be cutting things together in such a way that you are helping direct the audience's attention to what's important next. Uh, an unbroken Steadicam shot uh, can oftentimes be fun to watch just for its technical virtuosity, but very um, seldom does it deliver the emotional punch that, that people think it's going to. And so I'm a big believer in the idea of camera movement that really serves the emotional mm -hmm. subtext of the story. And I'm a big believer in using editing to make sure that the audience understands what the psychological line of the story is. And, and, I, and I think that um, the minute you – look, have I thought about it? Sure, I have. On, I, I directed so many episodes of Pretty Little Liars, I always wanted to do a whole act as one big steady cam shot just to see if I could do it. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we never got around to doing that, but I did some scenes that, you know, where I, I just kept it as one long steady cam shot. I look at those episodes now and I go, that really wasn't the best way to do that scene. It was just <laughs> me trying to try something I hadn't done before, you know, and um, it's, it's all of it's fine. But it's just at the end of the day, I ask myself more and more these days, what's the best way to tell this story? What's the best way to tell it? Not the fanciest way to tell it. Not the, the most um, unusual specialty shot. Which, what's, what's the best way to tell the story? So that I'm just, uh, uh, I, I had a, a mentor, a guy I edited for several times, Robert M. Young. He directed the movie Dominic and Eugene and mm -hmm. The Ballad of Gregorio Cortez. And I worked on uh, three movies with him, Triumph of the Spirit and a Showtime movie called Slave of Dreams and then a movie called Caught. And, and he just said to me over and over again, and uh, I really consider him one of my primary mentors. He was just like, Norman, put the camera where the story is. That's your only job. Put the camera where the story is. And he said, you as the editor, you know, cut to, cut to the shot that's telling the story. And, and I, I just have never forgotten that. I feel like it was a piece of advice he gave me, and I've carried it with me always. And, and, and sometimes you'll get into discussions with, camera operators and and dps on the set you know where they'll say well wouldn't it be cool if we did this and i and i always say i try never to dismiss an idea i always say yeah that would be cool but i feel like it doesn't help us tell the story in in the best way let's just get back to you know what the what the story needs are and the story needs are simpler than that mm -hmm. and um that's that's served me very well because i feel that um as I said, my resume speaks for itself. I've been I've been invited back to shows over and over again because I tell the stories well, and um, I, I feel that um, that piece of advice that Robert Young gave me has never steered me wrong. Well, there's also got to be something about all those hours that you've spent doing television. Like I think one of the masters at at camera movement for story, and oftentimes when I'm examining his work. I'm getting lost in it. There's multiple times where I'll go and do the research and go, how does he cover a scene? And I'll start examining his shots and examining his coverage, and then I'll get lost in the story, is Spielberg. I think Spielberg is one of the masters at it. And he started on what? Mm -hmm. He started in television. He was Columbo and, and figuring right. out how to do coverage with dollies and how to try to get that stuff done quickly and fast on schedule. And, 
And and you look at his movies, whether or not you like the overall films, you look at a lot of his his stuff. And I was I was randomly looking at a scene from uh, his last, what was it, Ready Player One, which you know, regardless of whether or not that movie ended up landing, there was just a scene on a rooftop that was so perfectly done. And as far as like how he split that dialogue up, and when he went to his second master, and then the positioning of each one of the people, and how it was emotionally volleying. Um, the control over the scene to each person and where they were standing and the blocking. It was just, it was perfect, perfectly done. And mm-hmm. and when I see something like that where it becomes invisible, even as someone that works in the industry and you're examining it and you're going, how did he fucking do this? And you're looking at it and then you get pulled in and you're like, whoa, 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 I have to rewind it again. I, I, only, I only counted three shots there. I have to go back and watch it again because you get lost in the story. And that I think that is so... Uh, such an important trait to have. And oftentimes, if you do it really well, it's invisible, so you're not getting credit for it, which I think mm-hmm. is one of the hardest things for people with egos <laughs> in our business is to not be getting credit for it. You'll get credit for that, you know, uncut Steadicam shot that runs through the whole sequence, but you won't get credit for that simple little scene of exposition that you made interesting with your blocking. You yeah, know? I mean, I think I feel about Hitchcock the way you feel about Spielberg. You know, I just never get tired of looking at Hitchcock's films over and over and over again because mm-hmm. he really, he really tells a story with the camera. That's, um, uh, um, it's 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 the camera is just always where it needs to be. I mean, one of my very favorite scenes, and when I teach, I I teach at UCLA, and usually one of the scenes that I start with is um, the scene from Vertigo where. Uh, James Stewart first sees Kim Novak mm-hmm. um, uh, in Ernie's. He's sitting at the bar, and then the um, the camera does a very unusual thing. It, as opposed to just seeing him sitting at the bar and then cutting to what he sees, the camera makes this move across the dining room. It moves away from him at the bar and moves across the dining room so that you have a whole uh, perspective of the entire room with all the people there. And then it slowly, slowly starts to push in on the back of Kim Novak. And it's not from James Stewart's point of view. It's from an objective point of view. And then it cuts into this back and forth between what, um, uh, what he sees and then him sitting at the bar. And then she walks up behind him and he kind of turns away from her. And it's this, um, it's this beautiful <laughs> shot of her where she looks almost like this Apollonian ideal. And then she walks away and passes by this mirror. So in that, in that one scene, it basically creates with that opening shot that pulls back to the subjective point of view. It basically pulls you into the perspective of you, the audience. And then he makes you, the audience, notice this woman. And then only then does it get into the back and forth between what he sees. So he, he very subtly and very uh, effectively identifies you, the audience, <laughs> with this private detective who's then following this woman through the rest of the movie. And it's, it's so masterfully done because it, it really moves the experience from the subjective into the objective and then back into the subjective again so that it takes you, the audience, and pulls you right into the subjective experience so that you, for the next 20 minutes of the movie, which has no dialogue, are basically as fascinated with her as he is. And I just think that that kind of filmmaking really requires thought and it really requires thinking about what the story you're trying to tell is. And it's not a, a, a grandstanding shot for the purposes of just saying, look what we can do, a camera movement. 
it's really telling the story in such a way that you're pulled into it in this very subtle and very mm -hmm. masterful way. Mm -hmm. I just can't get over it. I, I watch it over and over again just as a, as a, a lesson to myself. And remember that first and foremost, you're trying to bring the audience into this story and how can you do that? Ah, man, I love that. So that's my favorite part. It's my favorite part of prepping. That's my favorite part of directing. It's like trying to figure that out. Like how do I how do I use how do I use everything that I've learned about this this language, the cinema language, to actually make the audience feel the way I initially felt when I read it on the page. I love that. Yeah. I love yeah. that. It's my and favorite. you were you were asking me about my prep and that's that's what I do. I sit with the script and I think to myself, okay, what are all the various ways that I could shoot this? What are the various ways that I could uh, look at this scene and, and, and explore it so that I am uh, creating the, the most vital emotional experience for the audience? And, and, and that takes some time. That takes some thought. That takes some meditation, quite frankly. It's, it's mm. almost like um, allowing yourself to connect uh, to, to connect to the um, greater um, um, uh, intuitive creative energy that it just exists you know <laughs> it's not totally. like it's totally. it's not like it's coming from my um, from my particular intellect it's coming to me you know because I'm really allowing myself to think about okay what is the story that wants to reveal itself and and um, you know I, I've said before um, when people have asked me what it's like we're going to set, I said, well, you know, it's, it's really, a, it's a, it's a, it's an example of the way the world could work because everybody is just working so in tandem with one another. Mm. The only thing that slows it down is somebody's ego. Mm. And I said, it can be the director's ego. It can be the actor's ego, the writer's ego, the DP's ego, the producer's ego. It can be whoever. When somebody gets into the mindset of like, I need to be, exerting my will here then the whole process slows down but in as much as people are just attuned to the creative energy that is existing almost in the collective unconscious and uh is is being expressed through all of these different collaborators who have come together it's mystical it's really almost mystical the yeah. way that it, everything falls into place and um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, i i think it's a, an extraordinary um uh experience when that happens and so i really try uh, again, I'll say it one more time because I think it's such an important concept for myself, a strong ego, but a small ego, yeah. you know, being confident in what, what I've worked to, to develop over the years such that I have this, this um, amount of information to bring to the table, but don't feel or insist that it has to be my way or the highway. You know, it just doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't serve. It doesn't serve the creative process. Such great advice. Look, we've been we've been at this for an hour right now. How's you, how are you doing? You okay on time at this point? I'm fine. Yeah, yeah, sure. Perfect. Um, it's great advice, and uh, man, I really enjoy talking to you because I, I really enjoy uh, just learning from your experience and hearing your stories on this. Because um, oftentimes I feel like as a director, it can be kind of a lonely business uh, because you're not always interacting with other filmmakers. You're not always seeing how other people do stuff. And so I'm, it's nice to hear. It's nice to hear how you prep because I feel like I prep a lot of the same way that you do. Um, and it's it's nice to understand that uh, this business is one of the few businesses that sort of celebrates age and, and experiences, at least directing. Age and experience sort of becomes a great tool 
Uh, when you, well, well, I would say it used to. I, I don't feel that so much the case these days. Oh, yeah. I feel like I feel like there's a real appetite these days for you know the next the next new thing. You know, but uh, I, I I do feel like that. Um, look, I, I was really lucky. I began my career working with some really world class filmmakers. My first three films were. Um, as an assistant editor were Tinder Mercies, which was directed by Bruce Beresford, uh, Silkwood, which was directed by Mike Nichols, mm-hmm. and Places in the Heart, which was directed by uh, Robert Benton. And then I worked with these world-class editors. I worked with um, Carol Littleton on Places in the Heart. I worked with Sam Osteen on Silkwood, and I worked with um, Bill Anderson, uh, Australian. Um, well, he's actually Irish, but he worked on these Australian films with both Peter Weir and Bruce Beresford. I was so fortunate in the beginning of my career to work with these world-class filmmakers who taught me so much about the, the process and the experience of, um, of um, um, directing and, and, and really shared with me their thoughts. And, and, and that was such a, um, an auspicious beginning to my career. And, 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 and so I feel lucky in the sense that I have had as an editor a lot of time to spend with directors and Mm -hmm. see the different ways that they do it and see what works see what doesn't see the ones that really brought something um i learned from every single one of them even the ones that i didn't particularly enjoy working with i learned what didn't work as much as what what worked Mm -hmm. but i spent you know the first um 25 years of my career working in editing rooms and um that was um that was a really great experience because I was basically working with the directors. You know, I was basically mm-hmm. working uh, to, to um, back when it was on film, I would sit there and take notes while, while we watched dailies about what they liked, what they didn't like, why they liked it, why they didn't like yeah, it. That's so cool. And then uh, um, as I got into uh, editing and television, I worked with a whole bunch of different directors because it was a different director every episode. Yeah. And, and so I was very, very fortunate to be mentored by some really extraordinary people who who's – and they all taught me some, and they and there, and there's a lot of them. There's a lot of um, of uh, episodic directors who I just owe a great debt to uh, uh, Patrick Norris and Michael Lang and Ian Toynton. These guys that were uh, extraordinary um, uh, journeyman directors, and um, uh, Leslie Gladder, I edited mm-hmm. for her. I I, I I was really fortunate to to work with. Uh, uh, a lot of these people and and you're right you know once you're directing you don't really have that um, ability to be around other directors uh, when um, unless you're just going to some uh, DGA function and <laughs> and uh, I try you know when, when I go into shows I, I'll oftentimes go down on the set while I'm prepping and, and watch another director work just to see how they do it yeah. you know and I, I one of my favorite pieces of direction um, um, now was something that I learned from uh, Jennifer Lynch, uh, who is a wonderful director. Mm-hmm. Um, she, um, I was just watching her work one day, and, and she said to the the actor, she was having some issues with this with this one actor, and, and she just said, um, "Tell me how I can help you." <laughs> and and I just thought that was such a wonderful thing to say to an actor, like, "Tell me how I can help you." Tell me how I can help you find what we're trying to achieve here, as opposed to saying, I want you to do this. She really offered herself up as somebody who wanted to 
support to to take care of to 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 be a listener you know and and i, I just thought that that was such a an extraordinary I love thing to yeah. to say to a, an actor and i've 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 said it i don't know how how many times since and so i i really thank uh, jen for that because uh she she um she taught me that just by watching her yeah. and um so i i i do feel that in as much as one can take the opportunity to be on the set and watch other directors, it's a good thing to do because you learn from all of them. And it's always something small like that, that really, I've had so many of those little experiences myself and the few chances that I've had to do it, where it's just like, it's never this big, (laughs) those of you listening, it's not like you see someone like working with like, like a, like a steady cam or doing this crane shot. And you're like, Oh my God, that's so amazing. It's always something really small like that. And the few times that I've been on sets with directors and they've given me headsets, I'm always putting those headsets on real tight when they're going in close and giving direction to actors because it's those quiet little moments that change everything between a director and an actor. And what a great line that is. And thank you for sharing that on the show because that's a great one. Yeah, well, 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 thank Jen because she, she, like I, I really got from her that she really saw her role as to nurture the people around her, mm. you know, she's an extraordinarily generous person. She is a, a, a but, but, you know, I, I've had great experiences throughout my career, just seeing other directors work and, and being able to, um, to learn from what they do. And sometimes, you know, I go, well, that works for them, but it wouldn't necessarily work for me to sure. do it that way, sure. you know? Sure. Um, and, um, I think that that's the thing is the, and I, when I teach, uh, I teach, uh, directing, um, uh, classes, uh, for UCLA, uh, MFA, uh, students. I have been this year, uh, I taught in the spring and I taught this fall. Very cool. Uh, it's one of the things I say to them is that every director has to find their own way of, of doing it. They have to find their way of, of, of speaking to actors and speaking to department heads in a way that works for them. And I would never say to anybody, you should do it the way that I do it. I can only offer up, this works for me. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, my, my uh, approach is, is uh, taken from a lot of the, not just the directing um, uh, mentors, but the editing mentors I've had over the years. Well, over the years, um, I, um, just recently did a panel discussion with Carol Littleton, who was one of my primary mentors. And, and what she taught me about character and what she taught me about, you know, what you're looking for when you're watching dailies and, and, and looking through a cut is, is just so invaluable. And again, just has always stayed with me. Hmm. And um, um, I just, um, you know, so grateful to those people who have, who have taught me along the way because uh, my work is now representative of all of their work mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And, and I hope in as much as I pass on things that resonate for other people, that's the way the consciousness moves forward. You know, it's, um, it's, it's, we, we contribute to the greater whole by, by offering up what, what we do and what works for us. Uh, I don't, I don't give a shit about approbation. I, you know, like, I know that people enjoy award shows and that's all great. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, if people get into it for that reason, God bless them. But I, I don't have any interest in that. I don't, I don't, I'm not doing it for that. And I don't, I'm not like trying to, to get anybody to pat me on the head and tell me how, how great I did it. I'm, I'm doing it because I'm interested in, in the expansion of, of consciousness. And I feel like huh. that 
film and television is basically over the last hundred years the way that we have come to understand the world yeah and um i i'm fascinated by that and i'm fascinated by the idea that we're contributing um in some way to the evolution of our species mm-hmm. through the 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 work that we create and that i don't mean that to sound highfalutin i mean that <laughs> to sound like what just is what it is we're basically creating externalized dreams mm-hmm. for people to have a communal experience of yeah i agree with you man i agree with you and it's look this has been i gotta kind of wrap this up this has been a, such a great conversation um oh well i'm i'm happy to be a part of it I'm, i appreciate you asking me to be on your podcast yeah man and i've been taking notes so, so i know i'm doing a good thing when we're when i'm sitting here going oh that's a great idea um but this is the part of the show where I ask the guests to give a little bit of advice to the listeners, the younger listeners that listen to the show. You've been giving us advice the whole episode. Um, but I, let's play this scenario. So let's say that one of our listeners finally convinces somebody to let them direct their first episode of television. What, Knowing what you went through on your first episode, what advice would you give us if we had that first day we were about to step on set and we're dealing with all that anxiety like what would you what advice would you give well i would say that you're stepping into a machine that's going to carry on whether you fall flat on your face or not (laughs) so first of all to enter the set with a, a great deal of gratitude that you're surrounded by a group of people who want to see you succeed there's nobody on the set who's sitting there thinking like I want this person to fall flat on their face. So even if you fall flat on your face, they're going to help pick you up and, and keep the, the, the thing moving. Mm-hmm. You know, the, that's, that's number one. And um, uh, secondly, I would just um, uh, go back to what I said earlier in the podcast. It is okay to say, I'm a little lost here. I don't know what I want to do. Um, who can help me? That's, that's, that's okay. And I feel like that there's great strength in being able to ask for help. Whereas I think a lot of people are so afraid, well, if I suggest that I don't know, or if, <laughs> if, if somebody doesn't want to do what I want to do, and I, and I um, surrender, then I'm going to lose my authority on set. And I think it's just the opposite. I think in as much as one is really able to, to not be afraid of, of um, losing control by being vulnerable and just saying, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the right thing to do here is. You know, like, who, who can help me? I can't tell you the number of times I've said that on a set. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I'll just get caught up in the day and I'll, you know, I'll just be like, oh, gosh, I feel like I backed myself into a corner here. What, uh, what can we do to simplify this? I'll just turn to the DP in the middle of a rehearsal and go, I, I feel like I'm creating more work here than is necessary. What's what's the um, what's the solution? Help me. <laughs> and 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 people respond to that. You know, that, now that's not going to work for everybody. There's a lot of people who I think would 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 um, dispute me on that and say that I'm basically opening a door to chaos. I do not believe that's true. If you're coming from a place of really being clear about the story you're trying to tell. But also recognizing that in that moment, your your brain is not 
giving you exactly the information you need to keep the, the train moving. And the train needs to keep moving. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that, you know, on a, I always like to say that, uh, you know, on a 12 hour day, uh, five minutes an hour adds up to an extra hour of shooting. So it's kind of like if you, for every five minutes you save um, per hour, uh, you have another hour of shooting at the end of the day. Where a lot of people waste their time is in rehearsals that go on too long, mm -hmm. trying too hard to like work out every single beat, which, you know, to me, I keep my rehearsals really short. I walk onto the set and I say, okay, like, let's uh, block this from here to here. And if an actor starts to get caught up and like trying to figure out something that I think is going to take too long, just like, you know, let's just get the marks down and then we can go step off set and we can talk about what the various movements um, might be prompted by. But let's just say that you're, you're, you're going to stay from here, uh, from this mark, and you're going to go over to that mark. But let's, let's keep the crew working. Let's start lighting. Yeah, yeah. You know, the quicker you can get through those uh, rehearsals without a lot of... Um, of uh, navel gazing as i call it and i've seen it happen i've seen you know rehearsals that are going for an hour where a director feels like they're working out something with the cast and it's um it's it's mind-numbing for the crew and the mm -hmm. crew's all standing around doing nothing mm -hmm. you know the goal is to keep the train moving as much as possible and if you have a clear you know if you've if you've prepped well and you have a clear sense of what what you need to be doing then those rehearsals can generally go really quickly. And oftentimes you'll have an actor who uh, wants to talk everything to death and you'll have another actor who just wants to get into the shooting. You know, it's always better to say to the actor that wants to talk everything to death, let's get the marks down and then let's go off and talk about that and let's get into shooting. Particularly now that we're not shooting on film anymore. You know, back in the day, right. you know, you had to be a little uh, more precise about what you were going to do before you started filming but these days it's kind of like okay let's just start shooting and we'll work out things as we go yeah and um so th those are the pieces of advice that i think i would say is be appreciative don't be afraid to say that you don't know and keep the train moving So, oh, what did you think? I'm telling you, I wasn't kidding when I said I learned stuff in this episode. Uh, there were multiple times where I actually scribbled things down on paper, where it's like, fuck, I'm going to use that. That's fantastic. I mean, tell me how I can help you. It's such a simple, simple, simple thing to say to an actor that changes the entire mood and atmosphere of whatever moment that you're dealing with. It's fucking perfect. Uh, I hope you guys grabbed a bunch of those little nuggets from the show. Um, and today's a good one. Today's been a really good one. We've been doing a couple good ones in a row for you guys. Uh, and I know we go off the rails sometimes. And we like to have strange guests on the show and we like to do crazy stuff. And I, I love that. But at the end of the day, the show is still about figuring out how to be a great filmmaker, figuring out how to be a great artist. And episodes like today are the foundation of what this show is. So hope you guys enjoyed it. And once again, Norman, if you're listening to this episode, really appreciate you being on, my friend. Uh, and hopefully we'll get to hang out after the crazy COVID, crazy, crazy, crazy shit. Um, in the meantime, thank you everybody for listening. And as always, I will see you next Tuesday.